nothing's for sure. Nothing's for sure. I can feel so strongly about someone. And I can, a few years later, change my mind. Like, I loved my ex-husband so much. The first time I saw him, I was like, that's my person. And I went after him with, like, extreme focus. Like, I was like, you're my person. I love you. We're going to spend our lives together. I wanted to get married way before he did. I was so sure. And then, you know, seven years is not that long. It's, it is long, but it's not long. And I was just done. Like no fiber of me wanted to stay. And I just think if I can be that sure about something and then it doesn't work out so profoundly, then maybe it's okay to say, I don't know what's going to be forever. And so I'm not going to pretend that I do. That was Muffy J. Davis, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 199. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. Today's guest joins us to talk about change, particularly of the burn it all down and start your life over variety. And it is such a good episode. Quick note, though, that this conversation was recorded in early March, which seems like a long time ago at this point. And that was before the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic at the U.S., of course. So the tone and topics and particularly some of the future plans and events and stuff that are discussed in this conversation don't take, you know, current events into account. So I guess bear with us for that, but hopefully you'll enjoy having something very non-coronavirus related to listen to. I know that that is what I have been craving and loving myself lately. Also, as I know you know by now, this conversation, like the rest of Real Talk Radio, is 100% listener funded, and it never has that felt better to me than it does right now. What does that mean to be listener funded? Well, it means that we don't have any ads or sponsors. No one's trying to sell you anything, nothing like that. Instead, the conversations are made possible by awesome regular people, just like you, who've pledged $1 or more per episode, and that's over in our Patreon community. You can find us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And when you go to join, you will have the option of choosing like from different funding tiers and each tier comes with its own unique bonuses. So you get lots of fun bonus content uh, that can be tailored to your needs, depending upon what it is that you're looking for. So all of that is patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And of course, the show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if it makes you laugh and think and feel less alone, and if you want these conversations to be able to continue, then this is my ask. If you are able to join us, it's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Okay, let's get right into today's episode. Like I said, today you'll get to meet Muffy J. Davis. Muffy is a working-class queer femme, a writer, a podcaster, a person who has recovered from an eating disorder, and a long-distance hiker. She wrote a book called Ink in Water, an Illustrated Memoir, or How I Kicked Anorexia's Ass and Embraced Body Positivity. She formerly hosted a podcast called Flex Your Heart Radio, and for many years, she wrote a blog about health and wellness called Super Strength Health. In this episode, which covers such a wonderfully wide range of topics, Muffy tells us the story of all the significant changes that she's made in her life over the past couple of years. We talk about, you know, getting divorced, walking away from a business and career, filing for bankruptcy, changing her name, recovering from illness, restarting a brand new career path, 
and more. Muffy is one of the most relentlessly honest storytellers that I know, which I feel like is such a generous thing to be. And this episode feels to me, honestly, like one of the highest and clearest representations of what I originally envisioned when I first started this show. So I can't wait for you to hear all that Muffy has to share. And I know for sure that you'll walk away feeling equal parts comforted and lit up with possibility, or at least that's how I felt. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are doing this. Muffy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you were on this podcast a few years ago. I feel like it was some some chunk of years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much has happened in both of our lives since then, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's start with perhaps the most obvious change first, your name. Will you tell us the story of deciding to change your name? Oh, yeah. That's a great question. Um, yes. So I, in, let's see, maybe two years ago, 2018, um, I kind of changed my whole life. I got divorced. I closed the business I owned. I started prioritizing queer relationships. I just rapid fire changed everything. And in that, I really started thinking about my name. I had built this business, a health and wellness business that culminated in owning a gym since 2012. And I wrote a book in that time and became really well known just like as my previous name, which was Lacey Davis. And I, as I burned my life down, I was like, I feel like I want a different name to, I want to do new stuff that I'm known for entirely different stuff. And it felt like a time where I could change my name and not lose too much. Like I had some public facing projects, but I wouldn't be devastated if I stopped being known for those projects. It's not like I'm hiding them. They were good projects, but I just felt kind of energetically completely moved on from that period of my life. I also have a really fraught relationship with my biological family, my parents specifically. And I just started feeling like I wanted to name myself and choose something that was fun for me. And, you know, I had autonomy, you know, with my title, because it's essentially your name is your title. And I wanted to just have it be self-directed. So people all the time are like, why Muffy? And I'm like, I don't know. I had an imaginary friend when I was a kid named Muffy. I think it's funny and cute. There's just not a lot of story behind it. But I was just like, yeah, that's my name. That's the name that I choose. And I like it. <laughs> I think naming yourself is an awesome thing to do. And it's it's worked out well. There was some kind of transition time where people didn't necessarily pick it up right away. But eventually, if you're like, no, actually, my name is this now, people will. Unless they're real jerks, people will call you by that name. Yeah, I was reflecting this morning. And I know that you and I know each other a lot better now than we did you know, before you changed your name. But I was reflecting mm-hmm. on how simple that felt for me that it's like, oh, this is just your name. Like, and it it, like almost weirdly, it felt like, oh, this has always been your name. And maybe that would have been different if we had a 10 year (laughs) friendship where I was so used to thinking of you by a certain name, but it was just an interesting thing of, okay, it's just this now. And it was, I felt like it was easier than I would have told myself that it would have been for me to make that kind of change, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. I have to say, 
in the queer community, people are changing their names literally all the time. Like people change their gender and then they choose, they don't change their gender. They announce their true gender and then they pick a name that's more fitting to how they want to be represented. So I feel like in queer community, it's really common, but I felt really nervous about like my family and my friends that are not in the queer community, but I'm my family. I don't talk to most of them, but the ones I do talk to, I think still have kind of a hard time, but everyone was just like, yeah, sure. That's your name. That's fine. I mean, it's refreshing when something is in certain ways maybe easier than we expected. I don't know, you know, how hard you thought that it was going to be. But I think there's something in this story, like even this short couple minute story that you just told about changing your name with, you know, there's a lot in that story that we will dig into, right? <laughs> just like mm-hmm. low key burn down your entire life. But mm-hmm. um, I think that there's something encouraging about the reminder that we can make different choices, even about things that seem really set. Like I think that for a lot of folks, the idea, oh, well, this is just your name, right? That's Mm -hmm. one of those things that just seems like it is what it is to a certain degree. And it's, I don't know, what you just shared sort of calls into question, okay, well, actually, almost everything is changeable and things are up mm-hmm. to us and we do have more autonomy. And there's just, I know there's like an interesting reflection exercise, I think, in that of, oh, what have I, you know, been just saying has to be that way because it's always been that way, but actually could be changed if I wanted it to change. Totally. I think the person that had the hardest time with it was myself because I was embarrassed to just like publicly say what I wanted and not have a really strong reason behind it. Like people were like, why? And I'm like, listen, it's not even a story. It's just because I want to. (laughs) Um, But once I got over it and was like, you know what? I get to decide what I want and I don't have to have like some earth shattering reason for every little decision I make. It felt really good to just be like, yes, this is what I want. I'm telling everyone. I'm even telling people that don't know me very well because it's like your name isn't the first thing people know essentially. And it worked out fine. So that's one, that's like my life's mission is to tell people that if they want to change something about their lives and they can, they should go for it. I understand that changes sometimes uh, require certain privileges. So I'm not saying everyone change your life forever, but if you can, and if you think you can't like really try to think about it more, you might be surprised. You should go for it. I mean, I feel like you and I are very aligned in that shared mission. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that's like part of the reason that I'm like really attracted to all the stories that you share, because there is definitely that common thread of you can change your life, right? (laughs) I think you can totally change your life. And, you know, I love what you said about because you wanted to was enough of a reason. I think that there's a lot of permission in that, that I, I mean, I frankly struggle with that. And I think that a lot of people do that, you know, thinking or this misconception that there has to be a reason and usually a really dramatic reason, right? You're allowed to walk away from something if it's awful, right? Or if this terrible thing happened to you or if, you know, but just being able to say, because I want to do something differently, like because I want to full stop, no justification, no explanation. Oh my God, that is so powerful. I just really am into that conceptually these days because we feel trapped by what we think we have to do. And if those things are like, well, for me, it was like my marriage and my business. And that was literally all of my time. So that was my whole life was things that I wasn't sure about or that weren't working for me. And I felt trapped because I committed publicly. I felt trapped because of financial reasons, just a variety of stuff. And just to be like, 
I respect myself enough to figure out if there's another way was really powerful for me. Mm, Yeah. So let's slow down a bit and dive into um, sort of that story that you referenced, right? When we last recorded, Mm -hmm. you were married, you were living in a home that you owned in Portland. You were at Mm -hmm. that point, I think about to open the gym. That's in in my memory, what what I remember time-wise. And I would love if you could tell us the story of really what happened between then and now. Yes. So I was with my ex for seven years, which for me is substantial. That's like a thousand years in my opinion. And I loved him so much. And on some level, I still love him. Like if I fall in love with someone, I'll love them until I'm dead. But I stopped wanting to be with him. I am queer. I've always identified as queer. I've dated a lot of queer folks. Um, my ex was a cisgender man. And as time went on, that stopped working for me. Everyone in my life knew me as queer. It wasn't that I didn't feel seen in my queerness. It's that not being able to express it felt, it started to feel damaging to me. Actually, I started to feel like I was being inauthentic. And you know, of course, I, I thought about all the iterations that things could take. I, I could have tried to be polyamorous. Like, that is uh, an option that could have been on the table. But ultimately, I don't want to be with cis men at all. And I, I can't quite put my finger on when that shifted for me. Because it's not like I've never been attracted to cis men. I totally have. I was attracted to my ex when we got together. But I think if I really think about the timeline, I feel like when the election happened, when Trump got elected, the amount of revulsion I felt around patriarchy and misogyny just really filled up my entire being. And I'm so grateful that I'm queer because I don't actually have to be with cis men. I have the option to not. A bunch of my friends also feel disgusted at misogyny and patriarchy, but they're just like, eh, I'm straight. So what can you do? Which I totally respect, but I'm not. And I just started to feel like I'm not being authentic in my expression of desire. I'm not having sex in this relationship, which is really important to me. I want to be having sex. And I find myself growing angrier and angrier at this person who's not a bad person. My ex is great, you know? A really good person. But I, because of the kind of cultural context and the context of this relationship and my desires and my needs, it's just not working for me. At the time, I had just opened my gym, Liberation Barbell. I'd worked, like I said, since 2012 to build this like health and wellness brand that was about health at every size and intuitive eating and body acceptance, like really taking the diet culture aspect out of the health world, because I, I truly believe fitness is pleasure. It's it's fun to exercise if you find the right thing. I'm not saying the way I exercise is pleasurable for everyone, but I think moving the body is generally thought to, you know, bring endorphins and whatnot. And I hate that it's just been like destroyed by diet culture and made inaccessible to a lot of people and uninviting. So I opened my gym, Liberation Barbell. It's like the queer anti-diet gym. And full transparency, the rent on that gym was $5,000 a month. 
which before I opened the gym was about what I was making. And for me, making $5,000 a month is incredible, a ton of money. I can do so much with that. But when all of that was basically directly funneled to our rent and our bills. I worked about 60 hours a week, six days a week for a year. At the very, very most, I think two months out of the year that I worked, I made $1,000 a month. Sometimes I made $500 a month. Most of the time I made nothing. I had a lot of conflict with my business partner. And the reason I was kind of able to do this is A, because I'd had a really successful business before the gym opened and I'd saved a bunch of money. And B, my partner and I had bought this house that was one mile away from the gym. He had gotten an inheritance and paid for most of it. I paid for, I think, $20,000 of the house, but the rest, we couldn't get a loan because we both have so much student loan debt. Um, So we paid for the house outright and most of it was paid for by his inheritance. And I was essentially living rent-free, which allowed me to not make any money. And so when I had this realization of... Like basically what happened is I started fan, I got, would get like these outrageous crushes on women and queer people. And I would like fantasize about being with them and fantasize about being free. And it would just happen kind of over and over and over again. And I kept being like, um, this will stop, you know, like crushes are fleeting. It'll level out, but it just happened a bunch of times in a row with different people. And I was like, I actually think I need to leave this relationship. But what that also means is I need to leave the house. And what that means is I need to pay rent somewhere else. And what that means is I probably need to start making money. <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that was the reality actually. And the house that we bought was one mile away from the gym. The gym was kind of far out in Portland. So I relied on the kindness of my friends. A lot of people were just like, you can crash at my house for, two weeks or you can live in this room for really cheap per month. Cause I know you don't have a lot of money, but all of the houses that I stayed at, which I think it was like eight houses in eight months or something, they were all really far from the gym. So now I was having this, I'm working incredibly long hours and having an incredibly long commute time, which I did twice a day because I would uh, go home and nap in the middle of the day to make the 12 hour days manageable. And it just started to feel really intense. Like the the things that I had to give up in order to have the life that I want were huge. It was huge. And it was extremely tiring. Shortly after I left my marriage, I was like, I got to close this gym. I fucking hate working here. Not because I loved my clients with every fiber of my being, but I've been a workaholic pretty much ever since I started being self-employed and owning that gym broke something in me so profound. And I'm so grateful that it did because the result is my job to me now has absolutely nothing to do with my self-worth. How much I work has nothing to do with my self-worth. My productivity has nothing to do with my self-worth. And that was like the opposite of what was true before. So I am grateful for that. Um, The gym had a three-year lease. We were one year in. I basically begged my landlord to let us break it. He said no. And so I started to realize that the only, it, it truly wasn't sustainable. Like I was going to run out of money soon. The gym wasn't really making enough to survive. 
I, I came to realize uh, because the rent was so expensive, the membership was expensive. Our target market was basically like queer folks, trans folks, feminists, that sort of thing. That's not exactly like a wealthy demographic. It, I just started to realize this business is not going to survive. Even if I was willing to continue working like this, it's not going to work. So I decided to file for bankruptcy, which is the best decision I ever made. And if you feel like you're drowning in debt, I would love any listener to talk about bankruptcy. It really saved me. It really saved my life to just be able to be like, I can't do this and I quit. (laughs) Um, So I filed for bankruptcy and then uh, closed the gym. And as soon as all that was done, I moved to Tucson, Arizona, a place of unbridled sun. In the meantime, I got into a a relationship, a queer relationship that I felt like fully expressed myself authentically. And yeah, and here we are. I'm in Tucson today, being gay. (laughs) Gay Tucson. (laughs) In Tucson, being gay, the Muffy Davis story. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And not working too hard. The incredible thing about Tucson is it's not very expensive. So I work enough to live and to save a little bit so I can long distance hike. And beyond that, I lead a really pretty calm life. Well, there's many much things in that that I would like to dig into. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me first the, um, what was the timeline of this? So from when you had the, I would like to leave this marriage conversation, right? With Mm, him mm -hmm. to moving to Tucson, approximately how much time are we talking about? Yeah, I left I left my partner in January 2018, I think. Yeah, January 2018. I lived in Tucson in October. That's when I moved. And the reason that it took so long, I think it could have been faster, but because of the operations agreement I had with my business partner, in order to close the gym, I had to give six months notice. And... I left my partner in January and I didn't give my notice to my business partner until March. So basically, as soon as I could leave, I did. It's funny that you say that it, the reason it took so long in my mind, I'm like, <laughs> that's a lot of big changes in not even a full calendar year. <laughs> you know, I have to say, um, for better or for worse, I'm a quick cycler. So when I make a decision about doing something, it happens way too fast, like every time. But, and I used to kind of like beat myself up about this, but it's just who I am. Like, I like to move quick. Yeah, I'm the exact same way. I feel like there there can be an elongated initial period where things are marinating. And when I'm sort of checking myself and trying to understand the difference between like the intuition voice versus the fear voice, right? There's Mm -hmm. a period of time where there's some like, sitting in the soup, I guess, right? Like waffling in that. But then once yep. the decision is made, I feel like I'm virtually unable to fake it. I'm unable to keep doing the thing. Like then the change usually happens very quickly. And it seems yes. quite dramatic to the outside because other pe- the people who weren't sitting in the soup with me, right? Or who weren't aware that I was in the soup doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, they don't necessarily see it coming, but I can relate to that so much. Totally. And, you know, I think about I think about this with my ex, like kind of just a full transparency thing. I was marinating in the soup for some time. And I think for him, me being like, I can't do this. I'm out of here was surprising because I don't, that's a like a life lesson that I really learned is like when you're marinating in the soup, you need to tell the 
close people to you. <laughs> but I do, I move like that too. I keep it kind of private and I marinate. And then when I've made the decision, it's like, it's already done. And I think in the future, not that I will ever get married again, but in the future, if I'm marinating in the soup about a relationship, I think I'll let the person know a little sooner. Yeah, because I mean, there is something inherently, I don't know if unfair is the right word, but about you having all of the, and I do the same thing, but like having all of the time to process and to work through it and to do all of that and like then bring essentially your final <laughs> decision to someone that hasn't been at all a part of that process can be quite shocking for them. Right. And that's something I feel like I'm in my mid thirties and just in the past couple of years, I'm doing this thing where I receive feedback and I don't get defensive. I'm like just learning this. And it's really incredible to be like, yeah, I kind of wish I did that differently. I don't wish I didn't leave. I don't wish anything different about my circumstance now. But I think for my personal accountability, it's really nice to look back and be like, when I am doing this in the future, I'm going to say something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I feel like if we're not continuing to learn and grow as we change, sort of what's the point, right? I can look back on the ending of every significant relationship of any, you know, any type of relationship, the end of significant, you know, work or creative projects. And with each one of those, I could definitely pull out a, huh, this is what I would do differently next time. And I think that I used to give myself a hard time about that. Oh, you know, you failed in these ways. You made like these mistakes that would have been avoidable. And sure, maybe they're avoidable knowing what I know now, but it's really sort of that self-compassion of I did the best that I could at the time. And sometimes the best that I could was a huge fuck up. (laughs) Like sometimes it went really hurting people, making mistakes, Mm -hmm. making actions that were out of integrity, doing things that, you know, now I wish I could either take back or do differently. And that's just like what being human is, unfortunately. <laughs> totally. I, my kind of my motto this year, I have two mottos. One is grow or die. And the other is let go or be dragged. And I really feel like a huge part of that for me is learning how to receive hard feedback and learning how to apologize with integrity and um, show up to make different decisions next time. And I'm loving it. I honestly feel like my life is so much nicer because I can take feedback without either self-flagellating or totally deflecting it. And I can grow from it and become a person that's more in alignment with who I want to be. It's cool. I kind of like getting older, I got to say. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. I'm interested in what you said about how working at the gym or owning the gym broke your previous workaholic tendencies and um, sort of the interwoven relationship between your identity and your productivity. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that, particularly if you think there's anything in particular that helped you make that shift, because I think associating um, or correlating our worth or value with our output is incredibly common, right? You're certainly not the Mm -hmm. only person who would struggle with that. And maybe the truth is for you that something did just shift internally one day. But if there is anything that's more like tangible or practical that you could speak to, I feel like that might be helpful for folks. Totally. I feel like my circumstance is a little specific, but I'll, I'll say it nonetheless. So my whole desire to do a different kind of health and wellness business came from having an eating disorder for many years and 
um, I got really sucked into wellness culture during that time. The, the seed of my eating disorder was around perfectionism and orthorexia. And I got really obsessed with eating and exercising the exact right, perfect way. And at some point I started lifting weights and it really changed my relationship to my body before I was obsessed with being small. And then I became really excited about the idea of being strong. And that shift really allowed for some extreme growth in my eating disorder recovery and my mental health and my body image, et cetera. And I was just convinced that not that that was the answer for people struggling with eating disorders, specifically kind of anorexia stuff, but that it could be the answer. You know, I really, I, I, it helped me so much and I wanted to use kind of my suffering with an eating disorder to give my life purpose. Essentially, I was like, I really struggled. And the reason that happened is that now I can share my story and help people. As time went on and my recovery deepened, I found myself just caring about health and wellness in general significantly less. So in the first iteration of my recovery, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm eating donuts and I'm getting strong. And I was like all excited about like donuts and weightlifting essentially. And as my recovery deepened, I neither cared about the donut nor the weightlifting. (laughs) I just like, I just, food is cool. I love eating. Um, I love cooking. I love eating out. You know, I like food and I like moving my body, but it just seemed so boring to base my entire existence on those things. And that was like my whole platform was like queer, vegan, eating disorder recovery lifter. Um, And as I started to care less, it meant that I just couldn't represent it as much. You know, I've used a social media platform and blogging and podcasting at one point for a long time to kind of like just talk about what's going on for me. And I had built a following off of these things. And I just really stopped caring and it made it so that I couldn't produce that kind of content anymore. Like I don't, a lot can be said about me, but one thing that's unbridledly true is that I do not fake it. I just, I don't have it in me to say things that aren't true. And so, you know, there was this shift where suddenly I felt like I had nothing to say because I didn't care about those really specific things. And I had to kind of sit quietly for a while to figure out like, actually, who am I when I'm so far away from my eating disorder that I actually don't even care about food that much. That's really different than, you know, like determinedly eating a donut and celebrating it. Like, you know, it's just, it, it started to feel kind of like, I don't really know who I am. I cannot tell you how much what you're saying resonates with me with my like sobriety and running story. Obviously, I know that, you know, sobriety and eating disorder recovery aren't the same thing, but what you're saying about essentially the thing that helped you, right? Or the thing or things that were the bridge in getting well mm-hmm. really served in until you didn't need them anymore. And that's exactly how I felt, you know, like running and even at the time, like being vegan, those types of things were hugely helpful for me just in giving myself something else to focus on, actually starting to take care of myself in certain ways when I hadn't done that so much after drinking so much for such a long time and all of the sort of lifestyle things that went along with that. And 
And I too was, I created a whole brand around it. I created content and programs and things that I loved and I know, you know, helped other people. But same thing as you of, oh, I came through this, you know, dark night of the soul or whatever. And now I'm going to use, like, I went through that so that I can use it to be of service. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But what I found, and it sounds like maybe you did as well, that it can become a trap of its own where it's easy to sort of get stuck in a certain phase of your recovery if you're continuing to retell the same story. Or if you, for me, it was, I couldn't continue to make it mean something like that I had this hard time and like now I'm better. That sort of before and after narrative I found for me was really stifling because it didn't leave me room to change again. It didn't leave me room to continue evolving. It didn't really leave me room to make mistakes. And there's something in that of how it's like the evolution of owning your story, right? Where you want to do that. And it's really awesome to be able to share what you've learned in ways that can, you know, be impactful and useful for other people. And I think that there can potentially be a trap in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, obsession is obsession is obsession, right? So continuing to kind of focus on it in that one way, yes, it does stifle growth. And also it becomes like, at some point, I had to look at my behavior and be like, is this an extension of the eating disorder? <laughs> you know, it's really different, but is it still a part of the same story? And I just wanted a completely different story. The other thing that made me able to not be such a workaholic is that I just got really tired. Just so bone exhausted. I didn't sleep enough for the entire year. The Liberation Barbell was opened. I would get off work at 7 p.m. I would drive home. It was like a 40-minute commute with traffic. I would eat dinner. By that point, it would be like 9 or 9.30. And I would like try to go to bed immediately. And I would have to wake up at 5.30. For me, I'm a person that needs eight or nine hours of sleep a night. And I just straight up did not get that for one year. Um, so that made it so that I couldn't work as hard anymore. I was exhausted. I slept so much the first few months that I got to Tucson, like so much that my partner at the time was kind of worried. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that makes sense, right? You just exhaust yourself to the point of being able to re-examine why am I doing this? Exactly. Exactly. One more thing that I want to ask, um, sort of on the topic of eating disorder recovery. And obviously, as you just shared, it was an important part of your work and your story. And you even, you know, wrote a wonderful book about it a few years ago. And I'm curious with a topic like that, that was lived so long in your actual life and then talked about so much in your work. Is there mm -hmm. anything about that topic that you do still feel called to talk about publicly? Or is it the kind of, I mean, obviously we're talking about it a little bit right now, but is it the kind of thing where you feel like this is really complete? I don't think it's really complete. I still feel really passionately about the ideas that um, we can't hate ourselves into submission. I think diet culture is like an act, active hatred of the body and it's never going to give anyone what they want. I don't think diets work. There's all this science that say they don't work. And I think the ability to live your life, be present in your life, to like your life right now, no matter what kind of body you're living in is amazing. I also recognize that I am a thin cis white woman who is considered like stereotypically attractive. And I don't feel comfortable being 
a representative for body acceptance given these facts. Because in the scheme of things, yes, I've struggled. Yes, I have some self-hating tendencies, but it's a lot easier for me than it would be for someone with less privilege. So it doesn't feel done. Like my politics and my passion around it aren't over. I just think it's a good time to like let some more marginalized folks be the spokesperson for this notion. Mm-hmm. Something I've heard you say is that you believe that we can all seek total body liberation. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. I think for me, when I first was in recovery, I wanted to love my body. You know, there was this idea of like body positivity and body love, and that stopped resonating for me at some point because what I really wanted when I really looked at like what the goal is of my recovery is I wanted to just understand that I'm a whole person outside of my body. And I feel really grateful to fat activists. Body liberation is a term coined not by me at all, but by other people, fat activists that at some point were like, you know what? You don't have to love your body. You can feel, I I don't think most people love their body. We live in a culture that really sells us the idea that we're not good enough um, in every way, but especially in our physical form. But just the notion that body liberation is about living your life fully and completely with your body as your ally, but not needing to love your body to feel okay. And I think that is a more attainable goal for a lot of people than, oh, just love yourself. Like that actually is too hard for me and for most people. Yeah. And it's also just, it's so much pressure because it makes it seem like anything less than like full, you know, body love or whatever is failure. Yeah. I hate the idea that in order to be seen as like a good feminist, we have to love our bodies. That is not reasonable reasonable for a lot of people. Something else um, sort of around this topic that um, I've heard you say is, quote, I make rad decisions with my body and use it to do epic shit, end quote. Tell me more (laughs) about that. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's a little overwrought. I do think that, but I want to say also, like, sometimes for me, the epic shit is resting. That's the most radical thing I do because it is very counterintuitive to the way that I'm wired. So I want to just put it out there that epic shit doesn't have to mean like climbing a mountain. It can mean a variety of things. But that being said, I do like a long distance hike. I love to watch what my body can do. And that has changed over the years. Like Previously, when I owned the gym and before the gym, I loved to see how strong I could get, how much I could lift. Now, I like to see how far I can walk, essentially. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to go fast. I don't want to, like, do anything too dangerous. I just want to walk really far and just see how that goes. And for me, it's been totally life-changing to just use my body to be with myself in my day-to-day life. I am probably like most millennials, very addicted to my phone, very much involved in social media. I text a thousand people a day. Like I just really almost compulsively am in communication and long distance hiking has helped me see that um, I don't actually spend a lot of time with my brain unless I'm forced to. And if nothing else, walking all day helps you spend some time with your brain. And I can't do that without my body moving me. I guess that I could go on a meditation retreat 
but I don't want to. I want to walk. <laughs> so I, I love to have enough respect for myself to know that I need to sit with my brain. And I'm grateful that I have a body that allows me to do it in this really specific way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel surprisingly exactly the same. I remember <laughs> um, my very first long distance hike in 2016 when I did the Oregon section of the PCT. I had never done anything even remotely like that before, as you know, and was a real complete beginner. And like you was, you know, in constant communication with people, right? Much texting, much social media, all of that for pretty much as far back as I can remember. And right before I went out on that hike, I got a new new phone. And I Mm -hmm. thought that I had done everything right in terms of trans, you know, you can transfer your contacts, transfer all the things right from one phone to another and all the contacts transferred, all of that. And so it looked like it worked. And so I never kind of dug into it deeper. I get out on that hike, you know, where I have no service, anything like that. And I find that the part of the transfer that didn't work was all my music, all my audiobooks, and all my podcasts. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm out on this hike and I, first of all, was in like excruciating physical discomfort because I had never done anything like that and like pushed myself way too far, which it could be a whole other story, but I had nothing to distract me from me and I was out there alone. And it was, I mean, the most trial by fire of what you're talking about of, you know, having to sit with yourself, having to be with your brain. And it was astonishing to me, and maybe it shouldn't have been, but astonishing to me how impossible that felt for just, you know, eight, 10 hours a day to just walk and have nothing to listen to. And it was, yeah, I mean, that that, like changed something in me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I found I haven't had like exactly that same thing, but I've had like a really low battery and I'm only halfway through the section. My charging brick is kind of low, you know, like various uh, technology foibles that force me to just be with myself on trail. And it amazes me how excruciating it can be just to sit with myself and see what I think. And I also am really surprised at some of the thoughts that come up. I'm surprised at some of the judgments, those kind of self-judgments that come up. I'm surprised at some of the judgments of other people that come up. And, you know, I've spent a lot of my hiking time, like open mouth sobbing. (laughs) But I think that that's good. You got to clear it out. There's a lot of gunk inside of a human body and a human mind. You got to just like release. And for me, the best way is like, there's no mirrors. I can't give a fuck what I look like. I really like that about hiking. And I'm just alone with myself and my thoughts for a really long time. Highly recommend the cry hiking. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Cry hiking as therapy. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Um, Pivoting back to something that you said before, it seemed like kind of an offhand comment, but I'd like to dig into it more. Um, When you were talking about your divorce and, you know, getting into new relationships, you said, I'm never getting married again. And that sounded very assured. And I'm interested in your thoughts on why that is. Yeah. Getting married makes it really expensive to break up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing with like the deep resonance of, you know, recently having celebrated my one year divorce anniversary. So yes. Yes. Yeah. And I even, you know, my, oh my divorce <laughs> was I need a pre- minute. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's really real. <laughs> I don't know what I thought you were gonna say, but that's like it makes it really expensive to break up. Yes, yes, in fact it does. <laughs> you know, um I nothing's for sure. 
nothing's for sure. I can feel so strongly about someone and I can, a few years later, change my mind. Like I loved my ex-husband so much. The first time I saw him, I was like, that's my person. And I went after him with like extreme focus. Like I was like, you're my person. I love you. We're going to spend our lives together. I wanted to get married way before he did. I was so sure. And then, you know, seven years is not that long. It's, it is long, but it's not long. And I was just done. Like no fiber of me wanted to stay. And I just think if I can be that sure about something and then it doesn't work out so profoundly, then maybe it's okay to say, I don't know what's going to be forever. And so I'm not going to pretend that I do, you know, mm-hmm. I might feel differently if I had a relationship with my ex, but he very much is like, you destroyed me and I don't want you in my life. And I respect that. But I don't know, like if we had stayed familial, you know, I think I maybe would feel differently because I'd be like, our relationship just shifted, but we're still in it. But that's actually not what happened. What happened is he doesn't want anything to do with me, which makes sense because I left really suddenly. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, but I just, I don't know. I was just so sure. And then I was so wrong. And it makes me know that now I know myself a little better too. When we got together, I was 27 and now I'm 36. You know, I, one thing I've really noticed about myself is I cycle quick I make quick decisions. I change my mind all the fucking time and I probably will until I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm that exact same way. It's, it's interesting to hear you reflect on this because there's in our, let's say the last like two to three years of, you know, my life and your life, I feel like there's a lot of similarities and the, within those similarities, a lot of differences, right? Which is like totally. always makes for an interesting conversation because I mean, I had what I you know, have described as like probably the best divorce of all time, right? I've talked about yeah. that before here and we are still incredibly close and it is sort of what you described of a transition into a different kind of relationship. And even mm-hmm. still, it's been, you know, an interesting question for me of whether or not I would ever want to get married again. And it's not like I have to make that decision, right? It's not like, the, oh God, I have to know right now if that's something that I want or not. Of course I don't. But mm-hmm. it's been an interesting thought experiment of really pausing and asking myself, to be frank, deeper questions about marriage than I did before I got married. It was something that I sort of just did and sort of assumed that I would always do and didn't really think too much about. Like I'm always really inspired by folks who are doing, let's say like pre-marriage counseling, right? Or like that type mm-hmm. of thing. Even just thinking about about it in more depth than I did, which doesn't mean that I would do anything differently going back, right? I, I'm not upset about what happened, but I think it's an interesting, uh, I don't know, time for me to think, huh, what does marriage mean to me versus just potential long-term partnership? What does commitment look like? To your point, what does forever look like? You know, how much of my life and resources and finances am I and am I not willing, right, to merge mm-hmm. with someone else? What are the conditions under which, you know, I feel like the having access to the privileges of marriage would make sense, right? Like thinking about if I had a partner who had incredible health insurance, is that enough reason to get married? Maybe, right? And I say that sort of jokingly, but sort of not. And um, it's just been, it's been interesting to think. And I feel really good about the fact that I'm comfortable not knowing. 
Yeah, I I would maybe get married for practical reasons. Like if I loved someone who wasn't from this country or health insurance or if someone got really sick, you know, like those are reasons to get married to me. But because I think I'm going to want to be in a relationship with someone forever, like that's just kind of that's too much of a roll of a dice. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what I have come to is exactly, you know, what we were just saying about the practical realities of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing for me that I am sure of, because I don't know if I want to get married again, I know that marriage doesn't feel like the be all end all pinnacle of anything for me, the way that it might have when I was younger. Um, It doesn't feel to me like something too aspire to or something that I need in order for a relationship to feel like it's reaching its fullest potential. And that feels good to have that have shifted for me. And obviously, I'm just, you know, talking about my own experience. But I will say that if I do make that choice to get married again, I even think the idea of like vows around it would change exactly aligned with what you said of, I can't promise anybody forever because like you, I was so sure and then so sure, you know, that I wanted something different. And so for me, I think it would be very much like for as long as this lasts, for as long as this feels good in this current iteration, but I am no longer interested in like promising, making a promise that I have learned from experience that I can't keep. Yeah. I really wanted to get married too. Um, I, um, the survivor of a lot of childhood abuse and trauma. I don't have a biological family that is like, I'm going to love you no matter what. Cause I'm your mom. Like I just, I was never given those messages and I probably never will. And I wanted that so bad from a partner. And what I learned is mm, that it actually doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know, like creating your own family actually doesn't cure for lack of a better word, the childhood trauma you experienced from not having a family growing up. Like it's not transferable. And so I think learning that too made me be like, okay, well, if I can't get that, are there other parts that I want about like a legal state marriage? And I'm like, honestly, no, not really. Health insurance, maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Health insurance, as you and I have both had a rough go of it health-wise over the last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All the money that gets dumped into oh, my stuff. God, all of my money went to medical bills last year. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Mm-hmm. At least I mean, I'm healthy is it, now. Is it fine? <laughs> I mean, it's not fine, but I have so much, um, like, I don't go to the doctor ever because I don't trust them and I don't want to spend the money or whatever. And just being like, I, my health is worth this money was a powerful notion for me. Do I wish it was cheaper? Yes. Do I think it should be cheaper? Yes. But just letting it be like, I put all my money towards my health this year in a really real and concrete way is okay. I'm going to let that be okay. Yeah. I feel the same way. Folks who know me well know that I chose to come back to Bend for the first quarter of 2020 because my health was really bad. And, you know, this felt like home and I had, you know, a great, wonderful, warm, safe place to live with a friend. And this is where my health insurance is based out of. So, you know, easiest access to doctors and treatments and that type of thing. And a a, a similar mentality of my really only goal, if you can call it a goal or like focus or priority is to take care of myself and to feel better. And that after, you know, years of not doing that, if I'm honest, felt really good. Yep. 
Yep, totally. Yeah. You said something else earlier um, when you were talking about the decision to leave your marriage and you said that you said sex is really important to me and that that, Mm -hmm. you know, wasn't really present. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I am someone who would self-identify the same way that sex is really important to me. And I don't know that I've, if that's been really talked about explicitly on the podcast before. So I'd love to hear um, sort of more of your thoughts on that. Totally. I don't really, well, I certainly don't want to be in a monogamous romantic relationship that isn't sexual, but I don't know that I want to be in any romantic relationship that isn't sexual. And that's not to say, you know, I have many friends that are on the more asexual end of the spectrum and there's nothing wrong with that. I like think claiming your sexuality and naming it and emphasizing it is great. No matter the drive. I myself have a high sex drive. I have kind of always had a high sex drive as long as I can remember. And I, in my relationship, I was like, huh, I'm not wanting to have sex. It must just be because I'm getting older, you know, like there's this idea of like, ah, getting older, uh, my sex drive's tanking or whatever. But it's just that I don't want to have sex with cis men. Um, I'm not attracted to them in that same way. But for me, like having queer sex, um, feeling really embodied, feeling really willing to name my desire is super important and empowering. And so in my romantic relationships, I want to emphasize that. I have plenty of super close friends in which I don't emphasize that. But in, in my, you know, romantic things. It's really important to me to say like, Hey, this is a part of who I am. Um, my sex drive is high. I, I will like, I think we're going to touch on this a little bit, but I'm kind of trying out polyamory right now. Um, and a thing that really works for me about polyamory is I can have lots of sex and just to be like, yeah, I am 36 years old. And for the first time in my life, I'm like, yeah, I want to be a little bit slutty in a responsible, communicative and safe way. I'm down to be slutty. And I feel like it's interesting the things that come up, just naming the desire to have lots of sex, potentially with a handful of people. I'm like, oh, there's like this little seed of shame, even though I, when people are like, I'm slutty, I'm like, yeah, get it. To to claim that for myself has been a real journey, but one that I'm happy to be on because mm-hmm. it's a really good time, I have to say. Yeah. So about that specifically, what's something that you feel like that you have either had to unlearn or that you're currently working to unlearn that's like in order to allow yourself to claim that desire to be slutty? Communication. I want to like talk about STDs with everyone that I sleep with before we're in a like hot and wild scenario, you know, like I want to have a really clear headed conversations about STDs and all that kind of thing. Trying to learn that it's okay to want things to be a certain way. Like it's okay to be like, Oh, actually I want you to touch me like this. Or like, you know, I am like, how much do I want to get into this? Being socialized as female, I feel like I learned to be passive. Um, and in queer relationships, and, and maybe it's like this in straight relationships too, but and the general like stereotype is in the queer relationships, the femme is like the bottom or the person that um, is having stuff done to them. 
And the more masculine center person is like the top, the person doing the initiating. And this is like really generalizations and really stereotypes. So dear God, please do not email me and tell me how fucked up I am. I know that's not true. That's just the stereotype. Um, but I do have learned passivity and I actually like to initiate and I like to be the one doing the giving or the fucking. And so just to like, let myself name my desire, let myself go for it with consent is really empowering and also really scary for me. So I've had to unlearn some shyness, unlearn some shame and that I'm not done. I'm still working on that. So that's been really interesting for me too and reclaiming my sexuality. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So you mentioned that you are experimenting with polyamory right now, which I would love to talk about. Um, First, I guess for folks who might be unfamiliar, will you quickly share what that means and how it looks for you currently? Yes, totally. Um, I'm still figuring this out because it's kind of new, but people do polyamory all kinds of different ways. The polyamory that I am currently trying out is a sort of like Well, for me, I don't know. I'm not going to say this is true for all my partners, but for me, a non-hierarchical polyamory. So I don't have a primary partner who like their desire takes precedence over my other partners. I don't have um, a lot of rules. I don't have any rules, actually, for my partners or for myself, except for that, like, I want communication and safety. And... I'm just kind of seeing how this unfolds. So the kind of polyamory, this is it's called relationship anarchy. People can totally like go research, read the theories, but it's essentially just like I want to give and receive pleasure. I want my partners to give and receive pleasure. I don't believe that placing rules on myself or my partner is actually going to control anything or make me feel any safer and I want to communicate about everything that's going on that I need to know. I don't need to know like if one of my partners makes out with someone at a party and it means nothing, I don't really need to know that. Actually, I don't fucking care. I am not a person that's immune to like feelings, you know? So like when I hear about not every partner, but definitely like certain partners that I'm more attached to, if I hear about them, like having a physical or romantic relationship with other people, I do have feelings and I have to deal with them. I don't deal with them by placing rules on the person or even really processing too much with the person, I want to deal with it kind of like on my own with my therapist, with my friends, with myself. But yeah, so I don't need to know about every little makeout given that fact that it does um, garner an emotional response for me. But the things that are important, I do want to know. And it has required a lot more communication and a lot more uncomfortable communication (laughs) than I'm really used to in relationships. But I think it's been growthful and good. Mm -hmm. Is this relationship approach or style something that you feel like you've always been curious about? Um, no, I will say no. I did try a sort of like non-monogamy polyamory thing when I was younger, maybe like 18, 19, 20. And I did a really bad job at it. And how I did a bad job was I, when I found a new partner, I would get sucked in by the new relationship energy of the new partner and like completely forget about the old partner (laughs) and do like no assurance work or, you know, I just did a shitty job. I was a child. So 
I kind of saw that in myself. And what I thought was, I guess that means I'm just monogamous. Like I really seem to like to only focus on one person at a time. And in queer world, it's kind of radical to be like, no, actually, I just want one partner. (laughs) So I like have really identified as monogamous for the past few years. But I've been doing a lot of trauma work and I've been doing a lot of just uncovery around how I act in relationships, what of it is rooted in trauma, what aspects of my relationship are rooted in the desire to feel safe um, and the desire to feel in control. And I've kind of realized I, during conflict in relationship, I can have kind of extreme trauma responses. Um, I'm an anxious attacher, which we can talk more about that too, but I basically panic and feel like I'm being abandoned. And part of why that happens is because I can be an extremely codependent partner. I can put all my eggs in one basket. And so the notion of them leaving makes me feel like I'm losing myself because I have completely attached to that person and made my like kind of life story, my meaning a part being a part of being this unit. And my therapist was like, maybe you should take a date, uh, a break from dating. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to. And I think <laughs> it was really empowering for me to be like, actually, I'm just doing this work reclaiming my sexuality. Actually, sex is really important to me. Actually, I don't fuck people that I don't care about. So given those three facts, it doesn't feel palatable to totally like take a break from relationships or go into a period of celibacy. So I was like, what's option B? And she was like, well, option B would be to decentralize, to sort of take more time for yourself, date casually, date a few people, see what it's like to not put all your eggs in one relational basket while you're Mm -hmm. working on this like really intense childhood trauma, abandonment issue stuff. So, you know, this style of relating as therapist recommended. Basically, (laughs) what I'm trying to say is my therapist says I have to be poly so that I can take continue fucking people and have it be in alignment with how I am as a person, which is extremely loving. I was going to ask you what you feel like is sort of the biggest, truest why, like for you making the choice to experiment with this right now. And perhaps you just answered that. Yeah, that's it. I just I want to continue having sex. All the people I have sex with, I care about deeply. I'm not really capable of just like having some casual sex times. I'm not really a casual person. Um, (laughs) But I don't want to hyper-attach in this way that usurps uh, someone else's autonomy or takes away my own. Mm -hmm. So when, obviously, it sounds like it was a significant change having, you know, practiced monogamy for such a long time. And even if this is the right fit for you, do you feel like there were any initial fears or concerns that you had? Yeah. I mean, there's still fears and concerns (laughs) They come up constantly. Um, I'm a person that tends towards anxiety. I'm a person that tends towards making up stories about what things mean. So it's really hard for me to be like this person that I'm deeply in love with and like care for so much and place so much meaning on is like with their other partner, they're maybe having their own kind of like love or intense feelings experience with the other person they're fucking. Um, and I'm over here by myself and, you know, um, I do see 
in situations like that, I do see the urge rise in me to be like, well, call, call one of your other dates, like get laid yourself. But I'm choosing instead to try to just like sit with that and be like, okay, this person say, say they are having a love feeling for their other partner. So what, what does that mean? Does that mean there's less love for me? Does it mean, um, I'm going to be left behind? And you know, like, in my alarm bells inside of me say, yeah, that means there's less love for you. That means you're going to be left behind. And so trying to just like see what comes up for me. Like I, I have a lot of anxiety around this stuff and um, I do really fear being left behind. So I'm having to constantly negotiate those feelings that come up, see if I can work with them. A big thing I've noticed is I avoid feeling my feelings and they come out sideways. But if I just let myself sit with the feeling, don't call someone else to try to like come over and fill the void, just like see where it goes and what happens. I can often work through it or at least neutralize it. Like I might still feel kind of uncomfortable, but it feels tolerable. Whereas when the feelings initially come up, they often feel completely intolerable. I'm thinking a lot about my nervous system and my trauma responses lately. So I am still asking myself, like, is this kind of relating going to be okay for my nervous system? You know, that's like a super real question that I don't have the answer to yet. I'm working on tools to serve um, a soothed nervous system, you know, really regularly. I'm doing some therapy that's like working with my trauma responses and trying to repattern them. And I find that really helpful, but I am really concerned with my nervous system, put a lot of emphasis towards wanting to have a calm nervous system. Polyamory doesn't necessarily uh, lead to a calm nervous system, as you might imagine. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm teasing that out. It might not work out for me. This is, like I said, it's really new. I'm enjoying like getting to be intimate with multiple people, but you know, my nervous system has to be kind of my primary focus given my trauma. So I don't know. I'm going to see where it goes. I can't tell you how refreshing I find your honesty, particularly around exactly what you just said of, I'm trying this right now, and I don't know if it's going to work out. There's something that I really like. always try to emulate and embody about having an experimental mindset, right? And the just like the way that you're describing that, it's not like, okay, well, now I'm doing polyamory and I'm going to do this forever, right? It's, it's like almost like a lack of attachment, but that doesn't mean a lack of, you know, presence and like genuine interaction with the choice. And the fact, just like the reminder that that can be true, that you can try something like with your whole heart and it can still just be an experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if I've learned anything, I said, I don't know anything. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> yes, just totally, I'm showing up for it. I'm showing up to give it a shot, but I don't know. Um, you mentioned um, sp- some specific tools that you've been working with uh, to help calm your nervous system. It, I don't know what those are, but is it something that would be like either easy to like explain or potentially recommend? Yes. So one concept I've really been learning about is called polyvagal theory. And it's just about the different ways that our bodies respond to various triggers. I read a book called Polyvagal Theory in Therapy, and it's written for therapists to work with their clients, but I am in no way, shape, or form a therapist and found just reading it for myself to be incredibly helpful. It was helpful for me in understanding my own trauma responses, and it was super helpful for me in understanding 
you know, there almost everyone I know has a lot of trauma. <laughs> so it helped me understand other people's trauma responses too. And it gives tools for dealing with your own trauma responses. It gives tools for dealing with other people's trauma responses. And honestly, I listened to the book uh, while hiking. I listened to it twice in a row because I just, there's so much there. It was so concrete and so tactical that it felt like the best self-help book I've ever read, even though it's not written as a self-help book at all. So if you have trauma, specifically if you have childhood trauma, polyvagal theory and therapy is such a great book. I really recommend it. Um, The type of therapy I'm doing is called EMDR. It's a therapy that helps you to self-soothe. When you have a trauma response, they use either eye movements or like these hand buzzer things to what basically what happens is they kind of intentionally trigger you and then they pull up a resource that you build together. So for me, an example of a resource is um, my dog does this really cute thing where she like jumps up and she's a really small dog. So it's cute. If she was a big dog, it'd probably be less cute, but she jumps up and puts her paw, little tiny paws on my chest and like gently licks my face. And so I've sort of like embedded the embodied feeling of what that's like when she does that in my brain using a tool in EMDR. And so when I am triggered, I can bring, it's called a glimmer. So there's a trigger, which is the bad thing that you remember. And then there's a glimmer, which is the good and soothing thing that you remember. So I bring up my glimmer, my little dog doing the cute thing, and I can kind of feel the embodied reaction to the nice thing. And it, can neutralize the triggering thing, if that Mm. makes sense. It totally makes sense. It's actually really wild. So at the time that we're recording this episode I'm about to refer to isn't live, but it will be, you know, when our conversation goes live, which is kind of like a timeline clusterfuck. But um, (laughs) I interviewed Andrea Glick and um, her book recommendation was the polyvagal theory in therapy. Uh, And it's funny when you'd never heard of something and then you hear from it or about it from multiple people. And she's a um, psychotherapist and somatic healer and like really works in that space. And so it's, it's really interesting that, you know, she was educating me about that. And then now talking to you and hearing, you know, she taught me about glimmers and I had never heard that word before. And so it's just like a nice, um, for me personally, because I have had both conversations, right? Like a full circle moment. Totally. I mean, this work has changed the quality of my life. A hundred percent. I react to things better when I feel myself getting triggered with someone interrelationally, which is a bit, it has been a huge roadblock in my life. I will like watch myself be like, um, you know, I'm feeling activated. I think I need to take a break, not forever, but just for now. Um, I love you, but I got to go use my tools and resources to deal with what's going on for me. And we can like reconvene later. And just to have the presence of mind to say that instead of like hysterically sobbing and being like, Oh my fucking God, please don't leave me is a huge deal. I feel so much more peaceful. So I, I like when I first read that book, it's like a little bit dry because it's a therapist book, you know, but I was like crying because I just felt so hopeful that like actually it doesn't have to be like this forever. I don't have to be sort of whipped around by my emotions and my triggers. Mm, yeah. Also, I mean, that kind of growth is so beautiful and so hard earned. So congrats on that. Thank you. Um, I have one more resource I want to recommend, and that is Clementine Morrigan is a writer 
who writes about um, polyamory and trauma together. A lot of the more like mainstream polyamory um, information doesn't really take into account that sometimes people have trauma and it makes it a little harder to just like deal with your jealousy or whatever. She wrote a zine called Love Without Emergency that was also like a huge game changer for me. And sometimes when I'm feeling triggered, I just go read that again. I've read it like a billion times, but it is always helpful always helpful. Yeah. Um, I will make sure that I put links to all of these things in the show notes. So I feel like potentially the last like missing piece or open thread of this conversation based on the initial story that you told of what has changed for you in the past year is work-related stuff, right? So when we left off in the story, you had walked away from this gym and filed for bankruptcy. So when it comes to your work, your finances, what happens next? So now I'm a virtual assistant. Basically, when I walked away from the gym, I was like, okay, I can personal train people or do like distance coaching, nutrition coaching. And I can do that. I do. I have done a little bit of that. But the passion for me just isn't there. So it just feels a little bit boring. But I was like, well, I have no other skills. I focused almost a decade of my life on this like really specific world. And I hate the health and wellness world. <laughs> I, I like just was kind of like, I don't want anything to do with it. But what do I even do? And I realized in my self-employed time, I learned how to build websites. I learned how to run a newsletter. I learned how to make graphics. I learned how to blog. I learned how to edit audio. I learned how to podcast. Like I actually have an extreme amount of skills. And so I was like, oh my God, I can be a virtual assistant. I can help people sell their dream. And that was a big thing for me as I kind of stopped wanting to sell myself as a product that felt like another step in my eating disorder recovery and the health and wellness thing. Really people do hire you because you have something that they want. But with virtual assisting, I can just kind of be more of service to people and their dreams. And I, I, I'm really grateful that I'm in a position where I don't work with anyone whose mission doesn't align with my own or anyone whose project I'm not passionate about. So I'm helping these like brilliant creative thinkers kind of actualize their dream. And it feels so good to me to just like continue to be self-employed, to offer my services on a sliding scale and to be of service to other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and one of the ways that I know that you love to talk about this is that you basically made up your own job, right? Which I feel like is such uh, like fun and true thing. And yeah. it's also going back to the very beginning of the conversation where you were, you know, talking about, oh, sort of, we think we can't change our name and then we can. I feel like the, maybe it's not as, you know, cut and dry, black and white with the work stuff, but sort of, I feel like we don't necessarily believe that we can just make up our own job. And yet here you are. Yeah. I mean, it does require a little bit of, well, first of all, I should be really transparent. It requires a social media platform, or at least it did for me. When I was like, I'm a virtual assistant now, I just announced it on my Instagram and then I got some clients. So I can't um, downplay the role that quote unquote being popular or whatever plays. Mm -hmm. Like that's super real. My Instagram platform is an extreme resource to me when it comes to making money. But it also requires a little bit of being bold and being like, what? I'm a virtual assistant now. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you didn't know me that way? Too bad. That's who I am now. (laughs) Um, Which I am like, I'm good at that. If I decide something, I can do it, you know? 
Yeah. Will you give a couple more specific examples of either like the types of projects that you're really hoping to work on when you look, look ahead through the rest of this year or like particular like ways of being of service that um, you really enjoy in case it's the right fit for anyone who's listening? Yes. The kind of clients I've worked with so far are, I've worked with a lot of kinds of people, but my favorites are therapists, they're artists, they're academics, they're creatives, and they're people working in the like social justice sector. I love to help people make their newsletter. I love to make someone a nice, like user-friendly website. I am not a web designer. I don't know HTML, but I have worked with Squarespace, WordPress, Weebly, and Wix, and those are platforms where you don't have to know HTML to be able to do them. But some people, I kind of realize like they just don't want to or they don't feel confident. And I feel really confident making those websites work well. I've worked with some podcasters editing audio. Um, I've coordinated people's Patreons. I've helped people with fundraising fundraising drives to sort of like um, specifically... I worked with an artist who is a person that left their day job to be a full-time artist. They had a Patreon and they were making like commission type work, but they were like, you know, I really just need more Patreon supporters to be able to make this fly long-term. So we did a Patreon pledge drive to get to like essentially triple their income. Um, Our goal was to get, I think they had like 15 patrons and the goal was to get 50. And so we did a whole campaign to get them, you know, more consistent funding. I loved working on that. It was like so gratifying to me to watch it happen. Yeah, I will do anything. Like some people just have me be the energetic guardian of their inbox. So like getting rid of the stuff that doesn't matter, answering the quick questions that, you know, I know the answers to that would take away someone's focus from their project, that sort of thing. I love doing that. And then my absolute favorite way to work with people is in a business coaching capacity. So many people come to me just straight up not charging enough for their work. I think this is a huge issue for people socialized as female, for sure. And just like helping people outline a goal, figure out what it takes to achieve the goal. In some cases, I help them achieve the goal. So like, say... Their goal is to send out a newsletter. I can build them a template while they sort of solicit email contacts for their email and just have accountability and sort of some gentle pushback. Like when people are like, oh, I don't want to charge too much. I'm like, too bad. <laughs> like, Why do you need to be the absolute cheapest herbalist on the market? Why not be like, on par with what other herbalists are charging and offer like a low, low income bracket, just a few slots for the people that really need it instead of just like marketing yourself as the cheap herbalist, you know, like I really want people to charge what they're worth so that we can not work too much so that we can live full lives and so that we can afford to survive. Mm hmm. What do you feel like your boundaries look like around work this year versus, you know, maybe before you walked away from your gym? I mean, my boundaries aren't super concrete. They're more intuitive. I don't work so much that it feels bad for my body. That's like the main thing. Mm -hmm. And that can be really variable. I sometimes feel like I have the capacity for more clients. Sometimes I have a lot going on in my personal life and I feel like I have capacity for less. 
I always do what I say I'm going to do. I always show up for the clients that I have, but I don't actively solicit new clients unless I feel like I have capacity for it. And that's like a really intuitive thing. It's not like, oh, I only take five people or, you know, 10 people or whatever. It's all about how I'm feeling and what I feel like I have capacity for. Um, I don't work on the weekends. I don't work at night. If I had to guess, I would say I also don't work more than 30 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love even that you're speaking to sort of intuition-led boundaries because I feel like, I mean, just speaking from my personal experience, I've tried so hard to force really rigid boundaries or like rules around it. Like, okay, I only work from this time to this time. Okay, I only do this or I don't do this or, you know, trying to find essentially like the perfect schedule as if that exists. And Mm -hmm. having realized by making, you know, that mistake of trying to force that over and over again of the perfect schedule at a period of time where let's say like my mental health is really great is going to be totally different than what the perfect schedule is at a time where like some aspect of my health, like mental, physical or otherwise, like where I'm not well, those aren't the same. And, you know, I really really had to sit with the reason that one of the main reasons that I'm choosing to be self-employed and put up with, you know, whatever, all of the sort of downsides of that, which obviously, as you know, right, there are downsides for sure. Um, mm-hmm. that is the ability to be more flexible with my sort of time and schedule as it relates to my energetic capacity. And when I'm not letting myself do that, because I'm really just like forcing, 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 then what am I doing? It's like, doesn't make sense. No. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for a time, like in 2012, when I first started my business, I really got a lot out of working a lot. Like it made me feel really good, almost like high to like accomplish things and get new clients and write new blog posts or whatever. So I'm not knocking that. It just stopped being fun. So now I don't, I don't work so much that it's draining. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I would love to ask you, because I think we're approaching what feels like a good place to wrap up. This is a more general question, but what's on deck for you for the rest of this year? What are you most looking forward to? Where are you most hoping to grow? Any like small, joyful things, just anything that you want to share about what's what's coming? Yeah, totally. It's a great question. I don't totally know the answer to it yet, but I'll I'll say a few things. One is that I live in Tucson, Arizona. I live in this little trailer that I renovated. Um, I think it's going to be a hellish death pit in the summer. Like, I actually don't think this trailer is going to be livable. So I'm going to go north for the summer. I believe I'm going to go in May, maybe June, uh, probably to Portland. And I'm going to be there for some months. (laughs) (laughs) This is so vague. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to be there for some months. I'm going to work. I really, I am currently working with some new clients, taking new clients, and I really want to focus on like helping them get their projects to a really good place. And then in August, I'm going to hike the Colorado trail with some friends, um, which is about 500 miles. And then I think I'll return to Tucson in the fall. I'm not totally sure of like any specific exact things beyond that, but I do know I'm not going to live in Tucson in the summer. (laughs) I like when you're like, I'm going to hike the Colorado trail with friends. I was like me, I'm one of those friends, me. Yes. As if I like didn't know. (laughs) Uh, No, that's no, that's great. Well, I mean, I um, just sort of like real time update. As you know, I was 
on the fence uh, and being really careful about making uh, too many future commitments when my sort of like health status was like so unknown and I didn't know how I was going to be feeling. But there are still some things that are going on and some things that are, you know, seemingly going to require sort of forever management and that's whatever. Um, but the most acute problem that I was having was like intense iron deficiency, obviously, as you know, which is something that you struggled with and were a great resource to me for. So thank you. Um, the worst of that has passed. I just got new blood work results back yesterday at the time of this recording yesterday and that things are going a lot better. So I feel, and like great. I feel better. That's awesome. And also it opens up more sort of freedom and confidence for me to feel like I can start to make some more, you know, like physical plans for later this year. So that is looking more and more realistic for me for August. So I'm excited. Yes. I mean, I know you have some other stuff going on too, but hiking without anemia is like the best. (laughs) I got really anemic over the summer for listeners who don't know. Um, and I was actually on trail and had to get off and was essentially bedridden for three weeks. And then I just did a 10 day hike from the Salton Sea to the Pacific Ocean. Um, I finished a few weeks ago and it is like a totally different thing. I mean, I, I can't wait. I felt like I couldn't get out of bed in December and January and like most of January basically and <laughs> getting my blood test done and being like, oh, sure. That's because you have no iron. <laughs> Yes. You know, okay, I'm just going to do a little PSA for listeners. If you feel unreasonably tired, go get your iron checked. <laughs> yeah, and just... I I will add to that um for me given my super high deductible health insurance and just the way things were working, um blood work was going to be quite expensive and I found a resource that I will put in the show notes um Ooh. a site called yourlabwork.com where essentially you can self-order lab work and so basically you just like choose you like check the boxes of the tests that you want to have done and you pay at quite a discounted rate obviously for people who have, you know, great insurance and low copays, you know, that is obviously the cheaper way to go but for people like me who don't have that um yeah basically you pay for the um the tests that you want and they take about 24 hours to process it and then they send you essentially like a lab form that you take to like a quest diagnostics lab or any kind of local thing like that they take Mm -hmm. your blood they send it off the test happens and then you get the results back by email and then obviously it's up to you if you want to share them with like a doctor or a healthcare professional to talk through it but you know especially for the iron getting it retested that it was you know 30 bucks or whatever it was. Uh, I don't even think, I don't even know that it was that much. And now I just got the results in my email and I don't have to have anyone else look at it because I know what it is that I'm looking for. So that made it affordable for me to get what would have otherwise been, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of blood work. Holy shit. Yeah. I got nine, what a resource. I That's got awesome. nine vials of blood drawn in January when I was, cause I was testing for a lot of different things. And, um, when I went the, you know, to get it done at the lab, the woman at the lab said that her estimate, if I had gone through insurance, that it would have been like minimum of $1,500, probably closer to 3000. And I wound up paying mm. 680 bucks. So still wow. expensive, but significantly cheaper than it would have been otherwise. So that was a great resource. So yeah, Yes, blood tests, highly recommend. Um, so as you know, the way that we end these episodes are with a series of community questions. Basically, all of our guests this month are answering the same seven questions if you're down for some random rapid fire question answering. Hell yeah. What is your secret talent? Something unexpected, maybe, that you're really, really good at? Hmm. I'm really bad at secrets. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm a Leo rising, which I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but I really love to be seen um, and admired. So I'm not sure if it's a secret, but definitely a talent of mine is making people feel loved. If I have you in my beam of admiration, I will totally let you know. I'll be in contact. I will listen. You know, I, I, I'm starting to realize that warmth is not necessarily a skill that everyone possesses. And it's something that I really have a lot of. Mm -hmm. So maybe just being a warm, compassionate person is my talent. I don't know. (laughs) What's one of the last things that really made you laugh? Mm. (sighs) That's such a good question. I think, you know, honestly, I make myself laugh all the time. <laughs> I like um, like to talk to my dog, and I she my dog has this like I decided she has this like bad fake Australian accent, and so I like talk to my dog, and then I talk back to myself in her accent, and um, that makes me laugh a lot. But I am a quick to laugh person, so like. All of my friends are hilarious. I basically, I feel like there's two kinds of people. There's funny people and there's not funny people. And I really go for the funny ones. So I I don't know if I have anything super specific beyond that, but um, I laugh a lot. Laugh is, laughing is like the best shit. Mm-hmm. What helps you to stay optimistic when things feel hard? Therapy. Therapy helps me just having a concrete tactical thing that I do um, really gives me a lot of hope. And right now that thing is therapy. Connecting with other people is really helpful. I'm, I think I said this before, but I like have a lot of friends and I'm in a lot of contact with them kind of all the time. And it really makes me feel hopeful to just like have connection with other people, dogs, my dog, Mabel specifically, but most dogs really are helpful. I do love an affirmation too. When shit like really hits the fan, I commit to daily affirmation and gratitude lists. And I often hate doing it at first because it feels annoying to try to focus on the good when you feel bad, but they help. Mm -hmm. How do you define success for yourself right now? Peace. Yeah. Not being too activated, showing up with equanimity, um, being able to give and receive feedback and having enough money to not feel too stressed about money and taking good care of my dog. What's your favorite snack? Mm, I love snacks. Um, let's see. What am I enjoying? I love a vegan Cheez-It. Uh, <laughs> the Earth Balance brand ones are really good. I like... Um, the coffee shop that I like to go to in Tucson is called Exo Roast, and they have a vegan gluten-free scone that is blueberry citrus, and I like to have that and a cup of coffee, like, every single day. Um, yeah. Hmm. So next question is about books. I know you already gave a couple recommendations earlier in the conversation, but um, other than those, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Mm, That's a great question. Um, 
I love anything written by Dorothy Allison. She is a working class dyke who has written a couple books of essays. Um, the ones that I have are called Trash and Skin. And she also wrote Bastard Out of Carolina, which is like a critically acclaimed film. So maybe people don't know of her work that way. She's an incredible writer. And the way that she talks about being working class is really poignant to me. I really love reading it. Also, the book Intuitive Eating, the books Intuitive Eating and Health at Every Size both really changed my relationship to my body and my food. So I would really recommend those as well. Yeah. And then the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say deal with your childhood trauma. It will change your life for the better, even though it's really painful to do. Allow yourself to want what you want, even if it feels really hard or impossible to get it. And get your iron tested. Yes. Oh my God. That's like the best three-point assignment list. Yes. Uh-huh. 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 What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a particular favorite way to connect with new folks in general and then maybe people who might want to hire you? Yeah. If you want to hire me, you should email me at muffyjdavis at gmail.com. If you want to read my writing, you should read my blog uh, at muffyjdavis.com. And if you want to just like interact with me or follow me on the internet, see what I'm up to, watch my hikes, hear about my thoughts, see pictures of my dog, etc. You can follow me on Instagram at muffyjdavis. Consistent branding. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, you're the best, Muffy. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for just being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a really big shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I mentioned way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hello. So we are going to do five random questions, if you're ready. Yes, I am. Well, so the first thing that I was going to ask you is, what's your recommendation for something to binge watch? But I know you are not a big watcher of things, so perhaps you have a recommendation for a favorite podcast or something that we might like to read. Yes, certainly. Um so uh, a book that I've reread at the beginning of this year is a book that was published last uh, February or March by uh, someone called Maria Popova. She writes uh, Brain Pickings, um, a brilliant blog, um, if you haven't come across it yet. And um, the book is called Figuring. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I like her work in general, so I, I didn't know that she had a book out. Yes, it's a, it's a great book. Um, I read it for the second time and I love it. I recommend it to everyone I speak to. <laughs> yeah, okay. And a podcast I would like to recommend is a recent favorite of mine is called House of Legends by um, Daniel, I can't remember his, first, his uh, last name. He's a storyteller, a Scottish storyteller, and he records... Um, 
wonderful conversations with um, storytellers and their stories in each episode. Ooh, interesting. I feel like most of the podcasts that I listen to, while they might differ in content or subject matter, they're all very similar in terms of the types of conversation style that they are. So this sounds potentially like something new that I could add to my repertoire. I love those suggestions. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so our next question, what does the first hour of your day usually look like? Okay, so the first hour of my day, um, there are two scenarios. One of them, I manage to wake up early and I have an hour by myself quietly, or I wake up at the same time when my seven-year-old son, if I don't get up early enough, and then it looks completely different. (laughs) (laughs) So when I'm by myself, um, I like to wake up and um, draw Um, open the curtains and uh, see the sunlight if there is any at 6 a.m. and open the windows for some fresh air and listen to the birds in my garden or in the trees behind my garden. I like to sit quietly for about 10 minutes just to arrive in my body from the world of dreams just after waking. I like to make a cup of coffee and um, I light an incense in the morning. I like very much uh, Nagchampa incense. And uh, yes, I I just prepare myself for the day mentally and in my body. That's my favorite way to start the day. It's a bit more complicated um, when I'm in mummy mode immediately <laughs> and needing to cook breakfast. But still, I'm trying to perform that um, in a slow way so having a slow start that sounds incredibly peaceful I try to (laughs) it doesn't always happen but I do make an effort yeah what would you say is some of the best or most useful advice that you have received I think one of the best advice I received from back at art college from my art history professor who was very keen on encouraging us students at the time to ask questions and he would repeat this over and over again that if you have a question in you be sure that someone else in this room has the same question and if neither of you speaks then that question will always remain (laughs) silent so he was really encouraging with that and um, whenever I I'm in doubt whether what I want to say or what I want to share is of any value, I often think of him and Mm. this. Yeah, I think about that kind of thing a lot of, I feel like one of my, I mean, superpower, I say that jokingly, is that I'm not afraid to admit not knowing something or not understanding or not having read or watched whatever it is that everyone's talking about. And I have no problem saying, I actually have no idea what you mean. And uh, that has served me quite well. And I hear that a lot in the advice that you just shared. Mm, I really appreciate that. Um, I also consider that um, something valuable to admit not knowing, uh, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. What's something new that you would love to try this year? Basket weaving. Oh, okay. Tell me a little more about that. Um Well, I moved to the countryside from London um, last August and um, all around me there are many fields and trees, many more than there was in London before. And um, I have this desire to connect with the landscape somehow and um, 
And one thing I would really like to do is to create containers from locally available branches, roots, rips. Um, so this year, I I already signed up um, to a couple of basket weaving workshops. I don't know if they are going ahead, but I hope they will. If not, I might just ask for a distant learning tuition, um, I don't know, in a video call or something. <laughs> I really would like to use all the available material from nature around me locally and um, because I would like to make containers from them. I think there is some beautiful thing about the symbolism of it and um, I'm very passionate about craftsmanship. So um, using my hands and also using nature around me. Yeah, and especially as a way to even further ground down into a place that's relatively new that you said that you moved to. That's lovely. Absolutely. Yes, that's one of my intentions to connect with my local surroundings in a perhaps non-direct, well, it is very direct, but perhaps not the most um, obvious way. Mm -hmm. So our last question, what's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Hmm, this is a tough one. There are many things, actually. Um, one thing that I really appreciate um, you often talking about um, with your guests is um, the question of money and finances. I feel this is such a big taboo in society. And um, I am a creative practitioner, um, an artist, and I feel in the art world, it is also a taboo. <laughs> in fact, in almost every area of my life, apart from a couple of um, very close friends, there is almost never any place where people would openly talk about money, what they earn or they don't earn, or where the money comes from for certain projects or things. And I think um, there is no shame in where money comes from. And I think acknowledging that and being open about it is something um, I would like to see more of in the future and not be afraid of conversations around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel the same way. It was such an interesting experiment I guess to do a money themed month back in January and even when it was done I got a lot of requests from folks to do a second one later in the year and to cover more topics related to money because you and I are not the only people that are interested in talking about that for sure yes yes I'm sure I'm sure we are not alone but still it is one of the taboos I feel yeah I agree um, I guess and you know speaking directly about money you're a member of our patreon support squad which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making Making this podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying all of the guests. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. For many reasons. Uh, one of them uh, is because um, I value how you approach ethically producing this podcast, um, that you are not selling your content to sponsors you're not advertising anything through it and you pay your guests and um, you're not producing this for free you value your own work that you put into it um, so I think there is that very strong ethical resonance I appreciate I also think you have very interesting podcast episodes I usually um, look forward to listen to um, each time when a new episode comes out 
And there is another reason. Um, I've recently started my own Patreon journey and I was very curious how you are managing this community you have striving. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate what you said about ethical production. That's something that I think about a lot. And yeah, having a Patreon community can be a lot of fun. So good for you. Thank you. Do you, I know you said that you lived in the countryside, but do you want to share where you live and um, perhaps a social media link if that's something that you use, if folks want to say hi? Yes, um, I live in the UK, in East Anglia, in uh, Suffolk, in a small town. And my social media links, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. You can find me as Walking Lantern. Hmm. Thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows the show to continue. And I can't wait to get to talk to you and to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, as I always say, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. We'll be right back.